All right, hockey fans, listen up because we've got something special cooked up for playoff season. It's called the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge, and it's going to add some serious spice to your playoff experience. Now, here's the deal every playoff game, you're going to be faced with a handful of questions. It's like your own personal playoff puzzle, and it's free to join. And there are prizes because who doesn't love winning stuff? Daily winners, you're getting hooked up with gift cards. Treat yourself to some nation gear or maybe even your favorite jersey. And for the big dogs, the people who can win an entire round, it's straight, cold, hard cash. We're talking about real dough for your hockey knowledge. So lace up those skates, stretch those thumbs, and get ready to show off your hockey IQ in the daily face-off playoff parlay challenge. Sign up today and play every game day at games.dailyfaceoff.com and prove your puck prowess. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to the DFO Rundown Podcast with Frank Saravalli and Jason Greger on dailyfaceoff.com. Delivered by DoorDash. Welcome to episode 76, the Brady Shea episode of the DFO Rundown. I'm Jason Greger alongside uh, Frank Saravalli. And uh, once again, we have uh, matching hoodies. Is is this uh, great? It's great. We need to coordinate better. So funny. Oh, we never even talk about it too. That's hilarious. You just come up and like, oh, we're wearing the same thing. But Great. Hey, that's all good. It's yeah. all good. So although the colors look different on our cameras, which I find uh, interesting. Um, speaking of interesting, Frank, um, hearing, uh, you know what, the NHLPA has got some interesting uh, news potential here. Yeah, it's going to be a fascinating Monday. And I, we don't want to dive too deep into it because we know that whatever we say now is, is going to change at some point today. And you may be listening to this on Tuesday or Wednesday, whenever you, you dig into our Monday episode. But the point being, I believe that Don Fears days are numbered as the executive director of the NHLPA. And I say that for a number of reasons. One, the meeting that he held with the Edmonton Oilers players um, on Friday, I believe was contentious. Uh, yes. Players want answers. They want to know why the NHLPA and specifically Don Fear, you know, don't blame this on a systematic failure when it, it was presented to you twice by two different NHLPA certified agents. Information about Brad Aldrich that allowed him to continue to operate and move freely throughout hockey circles as a, as a serial sexual predator after 
uh, sexually assaulting Kyle Beach, who was not an NHLPA member, but was on an NHL roster at the time of the incident. So players want answers and Don Fear doesn't have any. The answer that he's been giving everyone that he's talked to so far is I don't have any recollection. That was in the report. Uh, there is an email that was presented in the report from an NHLPA certified agent who, uh, as I reported on Friday, was listed in the report as a, quote, professional acquaintance. And, you know, another agent was listed as a, quote, confidant. So if you read through those two words, um, you know, these are people that should have Don Fear's attention. They're not just random passerbys, even though if someone was presenting information like that, that should still be acted on. These are people that are regularly in contact with the PA that uh, there's no record at any point of Don Fear taking those conversations any further. Now, I will add that the one caveat to all this is we still don't know for sure exactly what was presented aside from what was in that email you know, what was said on those phone calls? How exactly was the incident between Brad Aldrich and Kyle Beach described? Was it in graphic terms? Was it simply just called an incident? You know, it's hard to really, you know, and this is the key point here. It's hard to hammer someone when you don't know exactly what they were told. But the fact that he doesn't have any recollection of, you know, multiple different ways that this was presented is, is alarming. And it's alarming that it got past um, you know, all those different points, you know, when he said quite clearly, at least in the report, I know people in USA hockey, almost like I can help here. And then there's no record of a call or email or anything placed to USA hockey to say, Hey, Brad Aldrich is working with you. And he's had these red flags pop up in the past. So where does all this take us? The NHLPA is holding an executive board call on Monday evening yep. with all 32 player reps. And my understanding is his days are numbered because in addition to, you know, the alarming nature of what's happened here, the players and other NHLPA staff are also saying like time's up you had first mentioned the idea of instituting a succession plan back in 2014 it's 2021, about to be 22. There is never, has never been talk of a succession plan. In the meantime, Don Fear has collected 30 plus million dollars in salary from the NHLPA. And there has been no, he's 73 years old. He's, he's gone through and has, you know, brought the NHLPA through a bunch of wartime scenarios, a lockout in 1213 you know, extending the CBA in 18, going through a new one in 20 in the middle of a pandemic. We've now gotten to the other side and we're dealing with the next five to six years of labor peace. What's your plan? What's your exit strategy? You're 73 and can't continue on forever, but he doesn't have a contract. So he's serving at will of the PA players. So how does this situation, and I know I'm rambling on, how does this situation work itself out on the call? Well, you need a quorum of 20 player reps to be on the call in order for the meeting to actually take place. My understanding is that won't be an issue. At a certain point, if the players want to discuss amongst themselves the idea of either removing Don Fear or having candid conversations about his job performance and his status moving forward, they can ask him 
to get off the call and they can have these discussions themselves and they could then decide to have a vote and actually remove him by force with 18 yes votes. That's the number required in order to remove him with force. But the fact that Don Fear called this meeting himself, understanding that the PA has been flooded with questions from players, understanding that the meeting with the Oilers players in person was contentious, he's now trying to get ahead of it and having this meeting to sort of put it all on the table. Now, I think the smart money would probably be on Don Fear realizing that this is a toxic situation. No one's ever confused him with being a dumb guy Resigning. and saying, look, I'm going to step down effective today, but because the NHLPA has continually been roiled in chaos when it comes to changing leadership, think back to all the different guys over the years that have gone out in a ball of fire that he could stay on to help guide the search process until a new executive director is found so that there still remains some kind of leadership. There's no politics and jockeying and everything else that goes on when that happens uh, with people trying to wrestle control of, of a pretty fragile union where players more often than not don't care. So that's sort of where things stand. It'd be fascinating to be on the call and see where things go. We'll have an answer at some point on Monday evening, I would imagine. But that's sort of the thinking as to the two different ways that this call could go. Yeah, I'd, I had heard from a, from a few sources that the, uh, the meeting on Friday did not, and as it should be, there, you know, there were some hard questions asked, Frank, and as you said, there, there wasn't any answers given. And I think that, from my understanding, is that was one of the more frustrating parts was there wasn't a lot of answers to questions. And um, complacency might be the wrong word, but maybe I just feel like some players I've spoke to feel like it wasn't taken serious enough. And, um, you know, Kyle Beach was 20 years of age. And we talked about this before. The fact that he had the courage to even go tell somebody and then not even the own players union helped them out. Like, never mind that, you know, that we all know the Blackhawks organization, the errors they made and people paid the price. But for the PA to, to do nothing when it was presented to him, that's that that to me, I think, concerns the players even more because they feel like the players association should be caring about us more than, than the actual team. So I think that's why there's a, uh, you know, a big thing going on here. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. But uh, but it's multi-layered to your point. Yes. It's not just about the Kyle Beach yes. thing. It's also yes. like. Time's up. Yes. Well, they have, there hasn't been anything new. Like, I, I've long argued that, you know, the, the PA is one where, you know, Frank, you said there's some that don't care, and I think that's probably fair and accurate, and I hope that would change because, uh, you know, they could present themselves a, a lot better in certain areas, and, and I wonder if they will have more players who want to get really involved moving forward. I'd be shocked. I mean, no. that's just not the history of the Players Association. They care about really three things salary insurance and pension and if those three things are taken care of to a level that they believe are proper and fine then they don't really bother with anything else especially throughout the season they've got it's such a short career such a short time to make hay and make your money that you players don't want to be spending precious hours and time during their season which is already you know short enough as it is um, to really be digging in on these issues on their off days and things like that. So it's hard to get players to buy in and actually really, you know, take the bull by the horns here and be more involved. And unfortunately that leads itself to complacency where you see a, a long tenure like this and, and not to 
you know, go too deep down the rabbit hole on, on Don fear and, and exactly what's gone on throughout his entire tenure. But this is, we're approaching 12 years now, 11, well, it's 11 years uh, in a month from now. So that's a long time for any one person to be in charge, let alone someone that's now 73, that people are wondering what exactly do you do when there's not a CBA negotiation going on? Yeah. Fair question. Um, we do have Ken Holland coming up. He's going into the hockey hall of fame later this month. And uh, we pre-taped this with Ken uh, uh, a few days ago, and uh, we'll air that a little bit later on. But first, let's bring in uh, Tyler Remchuk uh, for fill in the blanks. And oh, look, three for three, hoodie day. Woo! Yeah, we uh, we really do have to coordinate that a little bit better. Maybe we don't. Maybe us, you know, ha- ha- happily wearing the same hoodies. It's sure, good, like a good of, teammate, right? Like a bunch of dorks. Nothing okay. wrong with that. It's like we're going to a prep school or something. We're all dressed <laughs> the same. Uh, it's brought to you by DoorDash, proud sponsor of the Nation Network of Podcasts. Restaurants and more delivered right to your door. Use the promo code RUNDOWNDD. Gets you 25% off your first order and no delivery fees on that order as well. Fill in the blank. I got four lined up for you guys. I want to start with the Arizona Coyotes. Um, if anyone watches the live show we do every day, you know I love the fact that the Arizona Coyotes are losing because it's making me money. Um, but they're 0-8-1 to start the year. The question is, the Arizona Coyotes will win blank games this year. How many for the Yotes by uh, by the time they get to 82, Jason? Oh, gosh. Yeah. I'm going to say 18. Oof. 18? Whoa. There's only, they've already played 11% of the season. Yeah. So, so that means that they need to win 18 out of the next 70, one out of every five. They'd have to win 18 out of the next 73. Yeah. I mean, you think eventually like they're, they're professional hockey players. Eventually they're going to rattle off a couple, right? No, they're not. They're going to pretend that's, that's one out of every four they're winning. Yeah. Keep in mind, Frank, remember Colorado in 2017, they were horrific, right? They did 40. They still won 22 games. No, this team is, this team makes that Colorado team look like the Harlem Globetrotters. All right. I'm telling you, I I was doing the math on this last night. They're on pace for like nine points (laughs) through the first 11 games of the season. Hey Frank, you hate that. You hate it when the people say 11% of the 50. Yeah, no, I I, I do hate that. But in this case, this is historically awful. (laughs) So who are you? What are you picking? I I think they win on sub ten. I think they win nine games. What are you? This is like the Washington <laughs> Capitals of nineteen seventy six. They're right. that bad. Okay. okay. And here's the thing. As I mentioned, they're not getting. There are no. There's no cavalry coming. There. There's no reinforcements. They're gonna start plucking guys off this roster. Hey, Phil Kessel. Hey, Clayton Keller. Beat it like that. They're, they're trading these guys. Away. They're not keeping these guys in building for the future. They're trying to get as many draft picks as possible. They're trying to ensure that they get 20% or as close to it as they can in the draft lottery. Yeah. And it was actually the 75 caps. They had eight. The 76 had 11 wins. <laughs> Honestly, I think they finished with nine wins. Nine wins. Okay. Wow. 18 is a ton. That team is not winning one out of their next four for the rest of the way. I'm writing these down. I'm writing them down. Uh, all right. Carolina Hurricanes, they're the opposite of bad. They're the final team without a loss or an OT loss in the NHL at 8 0. Uh, coming up this week for the Canes, they got Chicago on Wednesday. They're in Chicago Wednesday, in Florida Saturday, and then next Tuesday, they're in Tampa. Uh, the Carolina Hurricanes will lose their first game blank. Frank? I'm going to say in Tampa. So, what does that get to? 10 0? Yeah, 10 0, and all the way to I the next tie Tuesday. I would the NHL record. Buffalo, yeah. and Toronto. Remember that 
there was that one Blackhawks team, and I got to find the year. I think it was the lockout. That was the lockout year. year. Yeah. Points in 27 straight or whatever. That was banana. Like, I remember sitting there being like, that team finished 36, 7, and 5, which is insane. Um, yeah, I think this Hurricanes team, I don't know if they're that good, but they're really good. Um, yeah, I, I think they start 10 to 0. Uh, I'm going to say nine because they're going to lose to Florida. There you go. Uh, how about in Alberta here where the Oilers and Flames are both off to tremendous starts? Only three losses, if you include OT losses combined between the two sides here. Uh, the most impressive Alberta team so far this year is blank. Jason? It's a good question. Well, the Oilers beat the Flames. So the Flames won five in a row on the road, man. Calgary to me is more surprising. I don't know if they're better. They're more surprising. Jacob Markstrom's been being, being good. So, uh, but I'd still go with the orders. Their power play is forty-seven percent. They've scored eleven power play goals. Anaheim scored eleven power play goals all of last season. <laughs> so I got when your power play is forty-seven point eight percent, like. It's ridiculous. So I, I would go with that. But by the slimmest of margins, the Battle of Alberta for the first time since 1990, when those teams finished first and second in their division, they, like they could actually be good at the same time, which would be uh, refreshing because it's, uh, it's 30 years. There's so many young generation of fans who have never even seen both teams good at the same time. The better team is the Oilers and has been the better team with all due respect to Calgary. And we love the goals. Lindholm and Mangiapane are each shooting 35%. Holy unsustainable, Batman. Like, it, it, they'd be thrilled if their season shooting percentage ends up being one-third of what it is at this very moment. Off to incredible starts. Markstrom has been fantastic, 957. That, to me, is the best you know, the best stat going for Calgary is how good Markstrom has been so far. If he gets back to that level that he was at two seasons ago, that team's an easy playoff team. Yeah. Goaltending solves so many issues. They can't continue scoring like they have with Lindholm and Mangiapane. But I think the inverse is true with the Oilers in that power play. Maybe not exactly at 47%. But I had, you know, one of my bold predictions for the year is that the Oilers are going to set the new NHL record for power play conversion percentage. We'll see if they can chase the NHL record for number of power play goals in a season. They've been sort of historically clicking in that 31, 32% range the last two, three seasons. And I think it's even better this year than it was previously. So that actually is much closer to sustainable than anything the Flames have done so far. Wow. And the last one. And this is the big one. A lot of rumblings over the weekend, but Jack Eichel will be dealt by blank. Frank? Yeah, I'm putting you on the spot with this one. By next July. I mean, that's the only answer. Like, what? to me... <laughs> what are you giving, like, eight Such months here? Yeah, I, I, it's a cop-out, but it, it's not really, because what I'm telling you is I just don't know that it's going to happen. Really? So that you're saying... I'm saying that as much as, okay, so, you know, I reported on, on Saturday and got everyone riled up saying that the Vegas Golden Knights are well down the track in having these conversations. And I said, will it get done? And I gave the shrug emoji and people were all over me saying, oh, thanks for the non-update. And I'm like, well, to this point, no one has really publicly said which teams are really far involved. 
they've said, well, this team is interested. This team is interested, blah, blah, blah. Like, so, okay. So if you don't want me to lay that part out there, fine. I won't. There were lots of rumblings, you know, even going back a week ago that a deal to Vegas was quote imminent. Obviously it hasn't happened. There's a lot of complicating factors and it's not just Eichel's injury, which is obviously a big one. It's also Vegas and their cap concerns. They don't know if stone can come back soon. Is he going to be out long-term Is he out the entire season? Putting this cap picture together and puzzle together is insane for the Golden Knights in order to pull something like this off. It basically needs to be dollars in and dollars out, but it actually needs to be that way on both sides if that were to happen because Buffalo also needs to remain above the floor and they're just barely above it now with Eichel on it. So, you know, there's all sorts of moving parts to this. Plus then there's the Calgary component and other teams that are involved. And then, oh yeah, by the way, at the end of it, you've got... Jack Eichel and his camp saying his situation health-wise is getting worse. We need a resolution very, very, very soon was the quote that I received. So, I, I mean, do they go the – do they just throw their hands up and say, okay, we're grieving this. We've got no other way to do it. And then if they grieve it, good luck. It, it really is going to become like July. Yeah, my, my question here is Dustin Bufflin went and got his surgery on his own. He just went and did it. Right. And I know that that led to them and the Jets not being happy. But what if Eichel says, you know what? I'm just going to get this surgery done now. I'm sick of waiting. Like, what, what's, what happens here? They could, have the option to then void his contract. Buffalo could void it. $50 million. Yeah. yeah. But if they void his contract, then they're going to lose him for nothing. They're not going to do that. Are they? Would he be a know. UFA at that point? Would you, if you, well, if, if they you, void his contract, he would yeah, be. If, if you were him, though, wouldn't you just be like, okay, I need the 50 million bucks more than I need my neck fixed? But well, wouldn't he but get that? Wouldn't he get close to fifty exactly. million on the open market again? I totally think he would. I wouldn't. I, I mean, I wouldn't pay him. I would need a, a first sort of one year sort of prove it, and then I'd need, you know, well, what would the contract then look like after that? No, uh, I th- either way, I think you'd get his. I'd, I'd be surprised if he didn't get his money back. But I guess the uh, the legality part's interesting. It just seems, you know, there's so many different you, doctors. Taylor Hall is this. the example of once you get knocked down a peg, and there are questions about Jack Eichel and his attitude too. You never make that money back. Like I think one of Taylor Hall's biggest mistakes, and I know he didn't necessarily want to be in New Jersey, but there was a massive eighty million dollar offer on the table in New Jersey a number of years back. I mean, look at how much he's given up since then. Yeah, but it all comes down again. When you've got his, like, a hall prior to his new contract that already made $60 million. Like, in his life, he says, do I, re-, you know, if I could stay in New Jersey and if he felt okay, like they weren't going to That's not what the point is. The point is, if he walks from the 50 and he only ends up making 20, yes, he already made 30 in the first three years of the deal, but is that worth it? Depends if he's happier. Yeah, I guess. I mean, how many million do you need to live? I don't, I mean, I can't answer that question. Yeah. Well, depends how much you spend, Frank, but I'm going to ask Lee, I'll say this. I think Jack Ico will be traded before Christmas. There we go. And that wraps up another stirring rendition of fill in the blank brought to you by DoorDash. It is a fascinating one because it's rare to see a player like this. You know, one of the elite players, he's definitely a top 10 center in the national hockey league. And when healthy, he'd help a lot of teams. But, and the other thing, Frank is, and 
You know what? Uh, everyone's like, well, we're waiting for Buffalo to slow down. The Sabres are now. I know they kind of blew it against the Kings uh, yesterday. They're up two to one and gave up that lead. But the Sabres play hard, right? Like they are they are much more competitive because at the start of the season, most people thought they'd compete with Arizona. Well, Sabres, they're way Columbus, way better yeah. than New they're Jersey's com- been really good. So I'm uh, I give Don Granato a lot of credit and, and Buffalo because not I don't think anybody uh, had them above 31st or 32nd this year, right? I don't think anybody picked them higher than that. So uh, they've been a big surprise early on. And you know what? They're, they're just more competitive. I, I don't think they're going to finish second in their division. I don't think that's where they're going to go, but it's been a good start for them. Now let's get to our uh, big guest today, brought to you by ESPN+. Plus. ESPN Plus has become the must-have for hockey fans. Get access to more than 1,000 out-of-market NHL games, 75 weekly national games, plus stream thousands of live events from the best leagues and the biggest tournaments in the world, exclusive originals, the complete ESPN 30 for 30 library, premium articles, fantasy tools, and much more with ESPN Plus. You can go there easy, sign up at ESPNplus.com slash DFO. And I know Frank was talking earlier about, you know, you and your son, you got all the games going on. Like if you're in the United States, ESPN Plus is it's your home. It's the, the only NHL. way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. You got to get it. So now we'll get to Ken Holland. Our next guest has his name engraved on the Stanley Cup four times. He's held a variety of different roles throughout his career in the National Hockey League, including goaltending coach, director of amateur scouting, assistant general manager before becoming the general manager of the Detroit Red Wings in 1997. He's now celebrating his silver anniversary, 25 consecutive seasons as an NHL GM, and he'll be inducted in the Hockey Hall of Fame as part of the class of 2020 in November. Ken Holland, welcome to the DFO Rundown. How are you? Good. Nice to be with you guys. Yeah, thanks for joining us. I got to ask about the wait and what this has been like for you. You find out 16 months ago, even voted in during the pandemic, but it's taken this long to get this induction ceremony and weekend together. What's even knowing you're going in and, and all that's that comes with that exciting weekend, what's it been like waiting? Well, I'm anxious to you know, obviously get to, get to the induction, but I guess it's taken me a lifetime take all of us a lifetime, all inductees to get a lifetime. So, uh, you know, we want to have uh, some, you know, family and friends there to support us. Um, you know, times are difficult for everybody. So uh, and it's, it's been uh, certainly uh, anxious to, uh, to get to the induction night. Um, but, but certainly under the circumstances, understand uh, the delay. Mm-hmm. Ken, anyone that knows you knows you're a worker, you're a grinder, you're a competitor, you want to win. But aside from the winning, what gets Ken Holland out of bed in the morning as you're, you're building your team? What part about the game really drives you? Is it, is it the scouting part? I'm sure it's probably not the salary cap and dealing with all that stuff, but um, is it the people part? Like what really drives you as a manager? You know, Frank, I think it's the same for everybody. You know, if you find a passion, and I've got a passion for hockey. I love hockey. I could talk hockey. You know, I, I played minor hockey in Vernon, B.C., and if I wasn't playing hockey, I was playing road hockey and pretending I was my hero. So, you know, it's not work. Um, it's something that I love to do. And then, obviously, when you get involved in professional hockey, you know, the goal is, like as you said, is to win. And then, uh, you know, you, there's different sets of winning. You know, you want to win the – 
you know, make the playoffs. And there, there was a time in the, you know, 1985 in Detroit, we had the number one overall pick and took Joe Murphy. We were rebuilding. We were trying to win enough to, you know, to win some fans back and then, you know, win enough to make the playoffs. And then uh, some major disappointments in the, the first uh, round early in the 90s and, you know, made some moves. So you're always, you know, trying to strive where your team's at, at, at to, to take it to another level. So I, I, I think the word is passion. You know, I think, and I think most people, all the people that are in this, this, this industry, you know, we have the passion every day to, uh, to get up. We we're doing something that we absolutely love. It's a game. It's a challenge. There's so many passionate fans, you know, for each marketplace that drives uh, the interest and, and certainly ultimately I've been lucky four times to win, a, be part of a Stanley cup winning championship. You know, the goal is to try to do it one more time. Now, Ken, last week you became only the fifth GM in NHL history to uh, to win a thousand games. You've been a GM for eighteen hundred and twenty-one games. You got a thousand and two wins. Like uh, David Poyle and Lou Lamarillo and Glenn Sather and, and Harry Sinden and, and Ken Holland. What what do you make of that group? You know, it's James. It's funny because actually the first person that told me about it was you. I was I think I was sitting at an airport and you texted me and you said congratulations on a thousand wins. And uh, or a thousand, and I wasn't sure. I, I so I, you and I exchanged a couple of texts, and uh, and then I found over the course of the next few minutes that I had reached a thousand regular season wins. You know, it's kind of mind-boggling personally to to think that the game's been around, been around a long time, and I'm the fifth winningest general manager in the history of uh, this great this great league. And you know, you just uh, I think back. I was you know, 1997 got hired by uh, Mike and Mary and Illich, Jim Devolano recommended uh, that they they hire me as the as the general manager and you know most managers start out at the bottom jason i started out with uh taking over a team that won the stanley cup had been the assistant manager in 97 when we won the cup and be, so I, I took over uh, one of the top teams in the national hockey league so uh, and some great players eiserman lidstrom you know the russian five shanahan uh fedorov so you know you, one season turns into another and you you know you're, you're just you're worried every every year about building a team and winning and, you know, fortunate that the Illiches uh, kept me around for 22 years and fortunate that Daryl Cates and, and, and Bob Nicholson gave me another opportunity and all of a sudden you hit this milestone. So I, uh, you know, certainly feel very uh, proud of the accomplishment. There's so many people that uh, have uh, helped make it happen. It's, you know, when you're a manager, it's about a lot of people, not about one person, but, uh, Certainly feel very proud of the accomplishment, but know that there's uh, many, many, many people that uh, helped make this happen. Now, Frank had outlined, you know, you started out as a goalie coach and then worked your way up into different roles. Then you become the GM and, you know, the old adage, the buck stops here and somebody has to make the final decision. When you look back now on 25 years, Ken, did Jim Devalano, did did anybody give you good GMing advice or was it just all kind of learning as you went? You know, there's 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 a number of people. You know, my my hockey hall of fame speech. Certainly, I've got to thank a, a number of people. But you know, I would say to you, you know, I played nine years of pro, Jason, and then uh, and then you know started out as a scout with Neil Smith, and then uh, for four years, Neil kind of taught me the scouting. Uh, you know, what to look for. We had lots of conversations. It's trial and error. You you make some picks. You like some people, and whether you pick those players or not, you watch how they go and. And you kind of, um, you know, as you go along, you, you get different ideas on what you want to do. But but basically, 1994 to 1997, I was the assistant general manager in Detroit. 
And I got to work every day with Scotty Bowman and Jim Devolano. And for me, that was going to Hockey Harvard. Uh, to listen, to talk to those those guys on an everyday basis, you know, they're thinking about the team. You know, Scotty was the coach. Jim Devolano was... Uh, was the senior vice president. That was that was my real, uh, like I said, Harvard, you know, going to university and really learning the professional hockey business about, you know, team building, negotiating contracts, you know, how to deal with people, building relationships, um, everything that goes into being a general manager. Ken, was the Hall of Fame ever on your radar? Like I'm sure people had asked you or mentioned it at a certain point, but what was it like getting the call that you were going in and 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 your emotions when you found out that you were? Well, no, the Hall of Fame was never on my radar. You know, Lanny McDonald called me uh, one day last uh, June, late June, I think. The you know, I hadn't really thought about the Hall of Fame, and I, I sort of knowing that they were going to announce a new class, but I hadn't really thought about it. And I was sitting in my office in uh, at my house in uh, Vernon, BC, and this. Uh, number rang I think it was a 403 number and I don't have the number in so I, I wasn't sure if I should answer it or not and I thought well I'll answer it and then Lanny was on the other end of the line and as soon as I heard uh, Nat, Lanny's uh, and I kind of put two and two together in a hurry and uh, felt that uh, Lanny was calling me about the Hall of Fame and uh, obviously uh, a surreal um, conversation you know you, you, my mind immediately went to you know, a whole lot of different emotions, uh, you know, elation, but also all the people that, that, that helped make it happen. And then after we, Lenny said to me, Ken, you got 30 sec, thirty minutes, tell whoever you want to tell. Don't tell anybody, but, but it's confidential for 30 minutes. So I went out and I told my wife, we called her four kids, each one of our four kids. And then uh, shortly thereafter, it became public. So, uh, you know, when I got the call from Lanny, it was, uh, I, mean, I can't even describe the, the, the words, you know, you, you're going into the Hockey Hall of Fame, um, never thought about ever in my life be going into the Hockey Hall of Fame and to get that call was uh, just surreal. Yeah, what an awesome moment that is. So you get the call and you are, I guess, finishing your first season with the Oilers at that point, but so much of your life and your career has been spent in Detroit as a member of the Red Wings. Was there at any point when you were making the transition, and I know you've mentioned Vernon, BC a couple times and, and a proud BC guy and, and being a Western Canadian, but was there at any point that, you know, it kind of hit you making the transition from one club to the other, just about how weird it was? Like, you know, all, I'm sure, you know, all the Red Wings gear in your closet and all the different things that you um, have accumulated over the years, it's a lot of it's Detroit to then switch over and, and be seeing and being around a new team. Yeah, I mean, I've been a Red Wing for 36 years. And, uh, you know, at the press conference when I was there with Gerald Cates and Bob Nicholson and had the uh, Oilers logo uh, behind me, you know, over the next uh, day or so, I had lots of people text me and thought that I looked kind of strange, uh, you know, with, with the um, the Oilers logo behind me. But, uh, you know, it, uh, great ownership in, in, in Daryl Cates. And I've known Bob Nicholson for a long time. He's a Penticton boy, which is... Uh, you know, he grew up just down the, the down the road, 90 miles down the road south of me. I've worked with Bob at the, uh, you know, with the uh, Canadian um, Olympic team and, and the Canadian uh, men's world. So I've got a relationship with Bob that goes way back. So I feel very, very fortunate to uh, to get another opportunity that they uh, believe that I could come in and help make the team better. But certainly uh, the first few days was a little bit strange where I'd get into meetings and I'd, you know, I'm supposed to be talking about the Oilers or Bakersfield, I'd say Red Wings or uh, Grand Rapids, but uh, 
you know, in, in short order, uh, I, 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 I made, uh, made the switch over and I'm an oiler and, uh, Western Canadian boy, uh, proud to have an opportunity to manage a, a Western Canadian team. And that's got a great fan base. Ken, when you look at one of your, your first things was to try to, I guess, patch uh, things up with the Esopol Yarby. And, and you obviously hadn't been there uh, when, you know, he had struggled in the organization. We're on the same page. If Ken Holland's, you know, uh, in, if this happens in 1997 or 98, when you're a young GM, are you as patient with Pugliarvi's camp as you were when you were in Edmonton? Like, did you learn patience as a GM in 25 years? <laughs> Jason, the answer is yes. I, I can tell you a story. I remember becoming, becoming the manager in 1997. And one of the first things I did was I traded the Conn Smythe Trophy winner, Mike Vernon, away to uh, San Jose because uh, we had a young Chris Osgood. Today, I tell him, uh, get, get out there and you're both on the team. We got, we're strong in net and, uh, you know, the, you, you guys figured out. So certainly by being a manager for 25 years, um, you know, you learn things as you go. And I, you know, I think uh, patience is one of them. You know, you try to, if your team's down, um, hang in there. Um, don't overreact. The, the National Hockey League 82 game season is a roller coaster ride. And then if you're fortunate enough to get into a playoff series, the seven game series is an emotional roller coaster ride. So, um, Absolutely, the 25 years of general managing, uh, you know, affects the way uh, the, uh, the decision making that I make now. How much has it changed? Because you mentioned you took over a team at the top, and also at a time when you had an owner who was willing to spend. There was no salary cap, and and you guys now just because you spent, the Rangers spent a lot and they didn't win, but the salary cap came in. How how much did that change your approach as, as a GM? And you've been in the salary cap era now for fifteen years, more in the, you know pre salary cap. But how different was it as a GM? Was it a challenge? Whereas before you could just go out and you know you could almost sign or trade for any player because you didn't have to worry about money. You know what, Jason, you know, one of the things that I'm really proud of was um, in 2005, when the salary cap came in, um, you know, we, we bought out, uh, I think Darren McCarty, uh, Ray Whitney, Darian Hatcher, you know, I had to go, we had to kind of go our pro scouts, Mark, how we went out and we, we found guys like, you know, Dan Cleary and uh, brought back Chris Osgood and, and, uh, I think we had 126 points, you know, the first year of the salary cap world. Um, lost in the first round Edmonton. I think we made the playoffs 10 consecutive years in the salary cap era. We were the last team to miss the playoffs in the salary cap era. So, you know, I feel proud that we were able to make that adjustment, you know, from we had a $70 million payroll in 2003-04 and, you know, had to find a way with a $39 million payroll to uh, – to be competitive and we had 126 points and won the president's trophy. So, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it was a credit to the job that Mark Howe and our pro scouts did in kind of, you know, beating the bushes and trying to find some players that were looking for an opportunity. And um, we, we found four or five players that came in and, you know, I'd mentioned Dan, Dan Cleary and there was, you know, Chris Osgood and there was, there was three or four other Michael Samuelson um, and uh, you know, certainly having Nick Lidstrom and, and that was the, really the beginning of Zetterberg and Datsuk. Eisenman retired in 0506, and Zetterberg and Datsuk grabbed the team and carried the team for another decade. So, uh, you know, I, 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 the salary cap is great for the game, Jason. It's it, it, if you're a fan of a franchise, you know, there's a, there's a high and a low, um, you know, a max cap and a, and a minimum cap. And uh, 
I think it, it's got to give all fans of of, uh, of their own team the, the belief that uh, they can their, their team can be competitive. Certainly, prior to 2005, it was probably six or eight teams that could win the cup. All the high high priced uh, high payroll teams, um, you know, Dallas, Detroit, Colorado, Philadelphia, the Rangers, Toronto. You know, there was two or three others, and then and then there was a it was a big 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 drop. But uh, you know, so it's it's a wonderful system now for competitive balance. When you look at it, at it now, Cannon, you, know, you talk about that, that competitive balance and, and building out those players. I do want to ask you, you know, Detroit for the longest time, you guys had great success in bringing over players from Europe. But I know you've talked about, obviously you get a little bit lucky because if, if you thought Datsuk was that good, you wouldn't have waited to take him that late in the draft. But what was with the success? What were you guys doing differently in the late nineties and early two thousands, bringing over the Europeans and, you know, finding these, you know, talented guys in third, fifth, sixth, seventh rounds that became legit NHL players. You know, I think our philosophy had a little bit to do with it. First off, you know, you have to go off to the scouts, you know, Joe McDonnell, uh, Jim Nell and Hawk and Anderson and, you know, all the scouts with them, you know, they're the guys that are going out and, watching games we were looking for for skill and I, and I think that uh, you know prior to maybe 05 there was lots of teams you know in the later rounds were looking for you know what I would call the one-dimensional players that the guys that were on the roster that could could uh, fight you know Scotty Bowman uh, I sort of learned that from Scotty Scotty liked to have four lines so deep if they all played you have to have some team toughness I remember hiring Mike Babcock in 2005 and we had the same conversation and I said Mike uh, we can have the number one power play in the National Hockey League. That's going to be part of our uh, for our toughness. So, you know, part of it would be philosophy. Uh, part of it would be um, um, the, the job that the scouts did. And then I think the other thing is when your team is good, Jason, we were able to leave our players um, in leagues, you know, where they were having success. We didn't have to rush them and race them to the National Hockey League. And I, I think about Henrik Zetterberg, who was uh, – you know, we drafted him in the sixth or seventh round. I think he was the rookie of the year of the Swedish Elite League. You know, we left him back for another year, and I think he was uh, he was the only player on Team Sweden in the Olympics in Salt Lake City in 2002 that was playing over in uh, over in Europe. Every other team player on Team Sweden was in the National Hockey League. So, you know, we had a an NHL player playing um, in uh, in the Swedish Elite League, and I think he won the MVP that year. And then we brought him over. So, you know, we we could have patience with the players. We weren't we weren't under pressure to to put those players in the lineup until they were able to uh, to come in and take somebody's job and contribute. I know these two guys were a big draw in terms of your reason for wanting to ultimately come to Edmonton, but what's it like managing a team with Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl? I'd imagine as exciting it is, that also comes with some pretty big responsibility in terms of finding the supporting cast necessary to put a competitive and consistently winning team on the ice. And d- does as you're sitting in the press box, watching these guys like everyone else is on a night to night basis, does your jaw still hit the, the floor? Like some of us do when we're, when you're watching it. Yeah. You know, Frank, I've been fortunate to, to manage and watch a lot of great players in my 25 years uh, as manager. Um, nobody's like Connor. Um, nobody that I've seen is, and, and yes, I mean, he does, you know, my, you know, after being in the press box, my eye, you sort of trained that, uh, you know, the NHL superstars look like this and, you know, Connor, and I'm sure there might be one or two others, but Connor can do things that, um, 
you know, other people can't do. I mean, and, 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 and then on top of that, it's his drive, his passion, his determination. And then, you know, having um, Leon as well, you know, one guy's 24, one 25, they're both in their prime. Um, you know, they, uh, Leon can play center. Leon can play left wing, big, strong guy. I mean, he can one time the puck as good as anybody in the national hockey league, you know, having those two guys, you know, one, two, uh, on our, on our team and, you know, Darnell nurse made a, a massive step last year. So that's the core of the team, you know, great, great players, but not only great talent, you know, competitors, uh, proud, uh, committed year round, determined, passionate, you know, all the intangibles that are needed. Um, to drive not only themselves, but to, to kind of drive the team. So, uh, you know, to watch, uh, you know, Connor play every night and, and Leon play, play every night, certainly uh, I feel very, very uh, blessed um, because they are, they are such incredible, incredible players and, and do things that, uh, you know, like you said, make your jaw drop uh, very, a lot. Mm-hmm. Last question for me, Ken. Um, I, and I have no doubt that, Connor will be joining you there someday. Uh, you know, I say it all the time. He could, and you don't want to hear this part, but couldn't he wouldn't have to play another game in the NHL and he'd automatically go to the Hall of Fame. But what's it like going in with this class? People that you've spent time rubbing elbows with throughout your career. One of your contemporaries in Doug Wilson, two, uh, the two of you, two of the longest serving GMs in the game. Um, you know, you, you had a chance to bring in Marion Hosa uh, in his career, you saw Jerome again, the play for a long time. Um, and then to now spend and enjoy this weekend, Kevin Lowe, your experience with him in Edmonton as well. Um, you've been around these people for a long time to also now share the same experience with them, uh, coming up in November. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I feel incredibly honored. You know, you just went through them. I mean, Doug and I go way, way back. We've both been sitting in the general manager's chair a long, long time in, in those GM meetings and have developed a real bond and a friendship. And, um, you know, Kevin Lowe and I were together, uh, I think, in 2010 at the Olympics. And, uh, you know, I've known Kem- Kevin for a long time. And Marion Hosa obviously was a Red Wing for a year. And I'm, I'm looking forward to really getting to know over the Hall of, Hall of Fame weekend, Kim St. Pierre. And, you know, I watched Jerome McGinley. I mean, great, great, great scorer, a great player, uh, uh, great, fierce competitor. You know, we played uh, Calgary in the playoffs, I think, uh, in 2000. Uh, one year they beat us and one year we beat them. So we had a real good rivalry with uh, with, with Calgary and I saw a Jerome up close. So, uh, um, you know, really honored to go in with, uh, with this class. It's a, you know, a, a great class of people great great uh, they've had incredible like uh, career accomplishments um and looking forward to spending uh, a few days with them over the hall of fame weekend in toronto in the middle of uh, november ken before we we always like to end with rapid fire but i got one more on on, on the oilers group and you know your team obviously got off to a good start uh, now you look kind of bigger picture for your team and you know the trade deadline you've talked about it before if you feel like your team can win you know you, you want to make some additions are, are you how do you balance trading? Because you got a lot of young defensemen in the system. They they all can't play. There's not a lot of enough room for all of them at once. Are you at the time where you would trade prospects, or is it still picks? Is there is there a better option for you when you think about the deadline? Well, I hope I'm I I, I, I hope I can be as optimistic as you. You've got us in a in a in a buyer mode already, and we're we're only six games in. So I hope you're right. Uh, first order of business, obviously, is to win enough games. And, and get at the trade deadline and uh, 
you know, basically feel like we're comfortably in the playoffs and, uh, you know, you can start to think about what you want to, uh, what, what little tinkering additions you want to do to, uh, to add, but certainly, uh, you know, my history has been in Detroit when we were in our prime, um, I was aggressive. Um, you know, two years ago, I, I tried to be aggressive my first year here, the, but the players, uh, re- rewarded, uh, you know, myself and the coach and then, and it played at a high level and we traded, uh, you know, quite a few draft picks away to bring in some players that didn't work out. But, uh, you know, over the last couple of years, we've had some young players develop. Like you said, we have lots of good young defensemen uh, in, in Bakersfield. Um, that's where I am right now. Uh, I'm going to watch Bakersfield here play this weekend a couple of times. I want to you know, really be up to speed on uh, what's going on down here with these young players. But, you know, if we play ourselves into a position here at the trade deadline, um, my history has been that I'll be uh, be aggressive. And, you know, there's got to be a fit. There's got to be something out there, a player that you think you uh, – you want and um but uh, you know i paid the price in the past and at the at the right time i'll do it again all right ken uh, we always like to finish with rapid fire the only rule is you have to answer all the questions okay so uh here we go we'll start um you, you got your hall of fame speech and it was delayed how many times have you edited your hall of fame speech I'm only three or four times right now, but actually today I, I, I put a, a one together. I'm going to send it off to somebody to get back. So here are the next 10 days. I've got myself under pressure, but I've kind of got the basics. So three or four times, but I know there's a bunch more coming here in the next 10 days. Are you going to memorize it or read it? Oh, I, I, I think I'm going to have to read it because I think if I start to memorize, I get off script. I might, uh, I might, I might uh, embarrass myself. Okay. Um, yourself, Doug Wilson, and Kevin Lowe, they're going in as players, uh, builders, but those guys have been GMs. Jerome McGinley and Marion Hosa, which one do you think would be a better GM in the future? Well, that's a great question. Uh, you know what? I think they both have – the biggest thing is I use passion. I think both of those players were smart, intelligent players. Um the biggest thing I think is if, you know, when you become a manager, obviously it's a big time commitment. Um, but I, you know, both of those people, both those, 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 those gentlemen, you know, were smart, intelligent players. Uh, I think that uh, if given an opportunity and, and spent some time with some experienced people could, could be met good managers. Now you started out as scouting. You said you've loved scouting. If, if we had to rewind, what would be your scouting report on Ken Holland, the goalie? Small, uh, doesn't take up enough space. Uh, he's a battler, uh, handled the puck pretty well, uh, but uh, not consistent enough, prone, prone to the soft goal. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's, that's pretty honest, Scouting Report. Um, when you started scouting, it was, when you look back in your career, was there one or two players that you ended up really going to bat for that, that you really liked, that, that panned out, that you were pretty proud of to say, you know what, that one worked out. My scouting was accurate to what they became. Probably the one that I had the most biggest big impact on would be Chris Osgood. You know, I, I, I was in Medicine Hat, Alberta, you know, I became chief scout in 89 and, um, you know, Chris played for the Medicine Hat Tigers. I was a former goaltender. Um, you know, so I was kind of on it on my own there a little bit, you know, when it comes to this, when it comes to goalies for the most part, the, the staff, because they thought I knew, I'm not sure if I did know or I didn't know, but they thought I knew because I played goal. So, you know, he won 325 games, uh, 
in a Red Wing uniform. He won, I think, four over four four hundred one or four hundred and three games in his career. So probably probably Chris Osgood, just because he's a goalie. Um, you know, we're both from Met, from Medicine Hat, and for a long time, I used to call him my fifth fifth child. There, he was he was around our house so much there in Medicine Hat when I lived there from nineteen eighty five to nineteen ninety five. You talk about scouting reports and you said there's things Connor McDavid does that no one else does. Dominic Hassett came in and the way he played goal was unlike anyone else. What, what was your initial maybe scouting report? Do you remember scouting Hassett before he came to the NHL and then even when he came there? I didn't scout him a lot, but I remember watching him when he first came over and I thought he was really like unorthodox. And, you know, he did things way differently than everybody else so you know your first assumption is well there's no chance he can be successful over here because you know he's way different than everybody else and as it turned out that's what made him great you know he was way different than everybody else and uh, you know if you thought he was going to do something he did something else and you know he'd do a poke check or he'd do a two-pad slide or he'd be standing up and but at the end of the day um you know spending uh, time around him he was an incredibly incredibly competitive um, goaltender. He did not want any pucks behind him in practice, and he and he practiced late. He played, and that's what drove him to, in my opinion, to be one of the greatest goaltenders of all time. Now, Ken, remember, you have here, to answer this question. Play. It's it's rap it's rapid fire. Oh, rapid so fire, rapid fire. Yeah, you you have been a GM for twenty five years. Which GM did you find was the toughest to negotiate a trade with? Uh, Glenn Sather would be up there. Probably the top. Why? I remember one time we, we were in a golf cart. I was, I was like a first, I just become manager. And uh, I, we went to the GM meetings. It was just the GM meetings then back then were like a week before the trade deadline. And I couldn't understand why I was playing in the, in the same cart with slats. <laughs> and it, we, we, we played golf for about 14, 15 holes. And it was really, really cordial. And everybody wanted to get to know me. And then about the last three uh, holes, he dropped his bomb on me. And he, he had some ideas to make my team better. And and uh, I thought, boy, he's 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 gonna he's, throw, he's he's not helping me. I think he's helping Glenn Sather. So uh, I learned early on that uh, you know certainly Glenn's got a reputation around the league as being one of the greatest managers and of uh, in, in the history of the game. And he was a shrewd, shrewd negotiator um, of contracts and of trades. And I. I Right off the bat, my first, uh, like I said, it was my first or second year as a manager, I got a, a taste from uh, how he works. And in that note, how did you balance to be fair as a GM while also wanting to win the trade? Is there a balance in that? Uh, being a GM, do you, do you have to be conniving a little bit? You know, you know, I think now that, you know, Jason, I think, you know, the staffs are way bigger now. You know, you, you think back 30 years ago and I, or 20 years ago was, you know, general manager, assistant general manager and five or six scouts. And, you know, there was no, you know, there, there wasn't as much information. So, you know, now there's, there's, there's 15 amateur scouts and there's, there's uh, five or five or six pro scouts. And, um, um, you know, there's more, there's more people involved. So I, I think that, uh, it's it, you're doing a deal now that works for both teams. And, and the other thing I would say to you, Jason, you know, some teams are trying to win the, 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 the trends of your, your buyers, where are your teams that are you're in rebuild mode, or you're trying to take a, take a run at the, at, at, at a long playoff run. 
Well, Ken, uh, we really appreciate you taking the time. I know it's super busy. Uh, we apologize to your wife for taking you away from uh, from dinner with her. And uh, congratulations on uh, having to wait a little bit longer, but I'm sure it'll be just as sweet when you go into the uh, Hockey Hall of Fame in November. Thanks, guys. I'm very humbled and very excited uh, for that weekend. That was Ken Holland going into the Hockey Hall of Fame. Pretty good class with uh, Ginla and Wilson and Kim St. Pierre and Kevin Lowe and Marion Hosa. It's a star-studded crop, Frank. At long last, too, I mean, I feel for these guys and, and Gal, um, you know, being told you're going in sort of in the middle of the pandemic and then it just being postponed. It's, you know, so unique. No class of 2021 either when you look at the historic – Hockey Hall of Fame membership role years, decades, a century from now, there'll be that one year, 2021, where there was no class that goes in. So this is going to be, uh, you know, two years worth of celebration that comes out uh, later this month. And, and we're all excited for that. And it's going to be fascinating just to see the emotion that goes into a different setting, Meridian Hall, as opposed to, um, you know, just another building in, in downtown Toronto where they normally do it. And, Geez, uh, I'm looking forward to it. Hall of Fame is always a special night and weekend. Oh, it's huge for them. And uh, good that they uh, get to have it with all their family and friends in attendance. Uh, that'll make it a little bit more special. And uh, we'll have a few more Hall of Famers coming up on the pod later this month. Frank, uh, we will be watching the Don Fair news later today. And uh, we One will more see thing. There, Gary Bettman is holding a media availability as well today, NHL commissioner. And I find it fascinating, Jay, that he's going to be the first person answering questions. You know, that's the one thing you think about. The Blackhawks, their owners, Stan Bowman, Joel Quenville, everyone, Kevin Dayoff, Gary Bettman, Don Fear, everyone that's been involved in this process and has had has been scrutinized has not faced any questions to this point. Yeah. Other, than, will be, other than current Hawks, right? The, Jonathan which is, Day, it, it, is it in a lot of ways unfair. Yes. The fact that you're leaving the players to take bullets when – they're not in any position of power. Yeah, 100%. Not absolved totally, as we've talked about, but not in a position of power. Yes, totally agree. So it'll be uh, interesting the first to time. see how that goes. Uh, have a good one, Frank. Uh, we will talk to you on Friday. Thanks for listening to the DFO Rundown with Saravali and Gregor. Keep it locked on dailyfaceoff.com and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from to never miss an episode. Delivered by DoorDash. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM 
for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. All right, hockey fans, listen up, because we've got something special coming your way this playoff season. It's called the Daily Face-Off Playoff Parlay Challenge, and let me tell you, it's going to add some serious spice to your playoff experience. Now, here's the deal. Every playoff game day, you're going to be faced with four questions. It's like your own personal playoff puzzle. And here's a sneak peek into some of those questions we'll be firing your way. First up, you got to pick the winning team. That sounds simple, right? But there's more. You got to decide if the total amount of goals in the game will be over or under a certain amount. And that's where the real strategy starts to kick in. Next up, you're picking who's going to find the back of the net first. And you're going to want to be careful because that's one that could be cooked early on in the game. And finally, you got to predict which period is going to be the highest scoring. Will it be a barn burner in the first, a shootout in the second, or a nail biter in the third? That's up to you to decide. Now let's talk about prizes because who doesn't love winning stuff? For the daily winners, you're getting hooked up with gift cards to treat yourself to some fresh nation gear and you might even win a jersey from your favorite team. And for the big dogs, those who can win an entire round, it's straight, cold, hard cash. We're talking real dough for your hockey knowledge. So lace up those skates, stretch those thumbs, and get ready to show off your hockey IQ in the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge. Play now at games.dailyfaceoff.com and prove your puck prowess.